Hello, I'm Maya Nowens, WISS Senior Fellow for Chinese Defense Policy and Military Modernization and host of the WISS Sound Strategic Podcast. In today's episode, I'll be speaking to some of the team behind the Armed Conflict Survey, an annual report exploring the political, military, and humanitarian impacts of active armed conflicts around the world, which will be launched on the 21st of September, 2021. Whilst the world has been battling the coronavirus pandemic, a more familiar challenge has continued unabated, armed conflict. The coronavirus pandemic has caused huge economic damage and human suffering. This has added fuel to the fire of social and political instability with a legacy that is likely to be felt for years to come. The Armed Conflict Survey raises important questions about how conflict is changing, who the main actors are, and how conflicts can be resolved. It looks at new technologies and explores the trends and risks that are likely to shape conflict in the years ahead. To discuss these important topics, I'm joined today by Dr. Irene Mia, editor of the Armed Conflict Survey and senior fellow for Latin America, Conflict, Security and Development, Dr. Benjamin Puccini, research fellow for Conflict, Security and Development, and Dr. Samir Puri, senior fellow in urban security and hybrid warfare. Welcome on to the show, Irene, Benjamin and Samir. Irene, for those new to the Armed Conflict Survey, can you give our listeners a sense of what they can find in this year's publication? Thanks, Maya. Yeah, of course I can. So the survey is one of the annual flagship publication of the WIWS, and it's also the flagship publication of its Conflict Security and Development Program, which I direct and to which both Benjamin and Samir are associated. It has been providing an exhaustive review of active conflict in the world since 2015, which is the date of inception of the series, looking at their drivers, developments, and outlook. This year's service covers 34 active armed conflicts across the region of the world and really aims to provide our audience of policymakers, donors, business and media leaders and the academia with unique strategic insight on the drivers of conflict, as well as geopolitical and geoeconomic linkages across conflict regions and globally. We are also focusing much more than in the past on the specific and regional outlook for conflict, identifying future hotspots, areas of fragility and political risk, people working on conflict and involved in conflict should watch. And we really hope that's the value added of this year's report. It's much more forward-looking than in the past. The conflict-specific analysis is also complementing this year by regional essays, which identify common trends and drivers across the different conflict uh, in, uh, in the five regions we cover and tease out linkages across the region in which conflict takes part, be they international jihadism or criminal group linkages across the drug routes in Latin America. This year reports also introduce a new composite indicator, of which we are very proud because it's an original contribution of the team. Uh, this composite indicator assesses the global relevance of conflict uh, as a way really to prioritize our analysis of conflict and also as our unique WWS filter to the study of conflict. The Armed Conflict Global Relevance Indicator is a bit of a long name, but uh, uh, that's the name of the indicators, is built around three pillars of global relevance, which are are the conflict geopolitical and global security impact, the human impact of the conflict and their intensity. This indicator is particularly interesting because it innovates with respect to existing country-level measures of armed conflict and instability, which normally are largely built around endemic factors and domestic-level political, economic, and security indicators. Uh, our indicator it takes into account uh, human impact and intensity of a conflict, but it's really quite focused on also the geopolitical and global security um, element. So we really hope this 
indicator will be a useful addition to the literature uh, and also to the study of conflicts uh, in general. Just to conclude, the report also includes a specific focus on issues that every year we select as being particularly relevant or insightful for the current and future conflict landscape. This year, we are covering three trends. The first one is the changes in the nature of third parties' intervention. I'm sure Samir will uh, will uh, will talk more in depth about this trend because he is actually the person who wrote the chapter in the report. The second trend is the protractedness uh, of the aftermath of war, this, this continuum between war and peace that we tend to see more and more. And Benjamin, I'm sure, will cover it, uh, given its, uh, its, its area of expertise. And also trends, that the third trend is really around migration uh, in, the, in the COVID world, both economic and uh, um, forced migration. In sum, uh, if I had to use three words to define our ambition and our inspiration when we put together the survey, there would be three, global, strategic, and forward-looking. Also, if you allow me to give a personal note on this, uh, this has been my first armed conflict report. And also uh, the team who has been uh, work on the conflict is totally new. So it has been quite a fascinating uh, and challenging at the same time experience. Because first of all, we have, we have been covering uh, conflict in a, in a very complicated year for the world, 2020, with the COVID pandemic. So in a way, we have been following in real time how the, the pandemic has coexisted with conflict. Conflicts. And what has been interesting to see is really how it has created the precondition for more instability and conflict going forward through its uh, socioeconomic uh, tolls. The other thing we have seen this year, we have covered in real time really, is an acceleration of conflict. So really, we have been writing our chapter as conflict was accelerating in, uh, notably in Africa, in the, in the Tigray region, in Ethiopia. Uh, we have followed the um, acceleration of, uh, of hostility in uh, Cabo Delgado in Mozambique. We have followed the coup in Myanmar, development in Ukraine, the dramatic development in Afghanistan. So it's been a really interesting experience for all of us. Brilliant. And so maybe for our listeners, could you give a quick sense of what some of the main findings are in this year's armed conflict survey along the wealth of factors and indicators that you just uh, described? Sure. So I would say the global conflict landscape has remained dominated by the same complex and upward trends, uh, which the report has highlighted since its inception in 2015. Most armed conflict we are covering and also globally have remained internal in their essence. There are very few interstate conflicts we are covering, for instance, the Nagorno-Karabakh one or the Kashmir one, but by and large, they remain internal uh, in terms of their essence. Even so, they have become increasingly internationalized, featuring intervention from a growing number of regional and global powers in pursuit of their foreign policy agenda and strategic interest. Third-party intervention has tripled in the last 10 years and is currently at record high. And it's something that, unfortunately, it's also complicating further internal confrontation, which, as we have seen, are already very complicated. Sometimes they, they already spill over neighbor 
neighboring countries. They feature transnational uh, linkages and actors, for instance, the jihadist Islamism, and also respond to multiple and overlapping drivers. So it's, it's a very complex scenario when we look at conflict. The main culprit for that is an, an increasing complexity in actors, both state and non-state. With respect to non-state armed group, what we have seen uh, is that they have proliferated in numbers, nature and motives, and this really exacerbate conflict dynamics and does obstruct uh, prospect for peace. Another trend we have seen is that the duration of conflict has extended progressively in the last few decades, uh, reaching an average of 30 years, according to our estimate in 2020. As I alluded earlier, I made blurring boundaries between war and peace, war and post-war, and frequent also conflict relapses. In terms of regions, uh, Sub-Saharan Africa, the Middle East and North Africa remain the most conflict-prone regions globally, while conflict escalated across Sub-Saharan Africa, including in the Sahel, in the Lake Chad, the Basin, in Ethiopia and Mozambique. The Middle East and North Africa continue to remain home of some of the most intractable conflict and also conflict which features very predominantly third-party intervention in line of the trends I mentioned before. And this is clear if you look at, you know, conflict in Libya, in Syria or, or Yemen, very intractable conflict. Given that this is the year of the pandemic, allow me to, to conclude my remark with some consideration on the linkage bef- between conflict and pandemic. Despite the coronavirus pandemic-induced mobility restrictions, which disrupted many activities across the world, many supply chains, as we know, and also despite calls from the UN for a global ceasefire, what we see is that the number of conflict actually hit a record high in 2020, with more active conflicts than at any time since 1945. So the the coronavirus pandemic didn't have really a disruptive impact on conflict, I would say. What's more, the pandemic's socioeconomic tolls may exacerbate conflict drivers for years to come, Uh, especially when one considers the lost development gains due to the pandemic, rising poverty and inequality in the global south uh, specifically, and also food insecurity, which the pandemic has brought about. If we consider this actually takes place in the context of uh, falling aid resources and also much reduced fiscal space for state to really address those socioeconomic tolls of the pandemic without measures and strategy to address those the socioeconomic uh, tolls of the pandemic, we are going to see more conflict. The pandemic really is going to be an incubator for instability, political instability and conflict going forward. Very interesting element also we have seen uh, when we look at the pandemic is that non-state armed groups have proven very skillful in leveraging the, the strains on government uh, resources and attention. And they have strengthened their territorial control and also they have adapted very well to the disruption in supply chain. And you see that notably if you look at, uh, for instance, that reconfiguration of supply chain for drugs trafficking in South America. But also what is interesting is then some, some cases those groups have actually stepped in to uh, replace the states, which was uh, in general stretched, but also particularly stretched by the pandemic. And in doing so, be it by distributing medical supplies or providing basic services, they have increased their legitimacy with the general population. So I would say the pandemic is something that this year we haven't seen a big impact of the pandemic on conflict, but we're going to see it more and more going forward. Fascinating. Thank you, Irene. 
Now, Benjamin, Irene just talked about the intractability of conflicts. And I know that this is an area that you focused on in the survey. So could you explain a little bit more about why conflicts are proving so difficult to resolve? Thank you for the question, Maya. Conflicts have undergone fundamental changes uh, in the last few uh, decades. Uh, what we clearly say in the armed conflict survey is that uh, it is not the nature of conflict that has changed. Wars, in fact, are still fought over a mix of grievances, including justice, representation, access to resources, and a mix of factors like power, ideology, etc. What we say is that what has changed is the landscape on which conflicts take place and the technology of war. We are now in an era of increasing global disorder, of societal change, uh, with undermining global norms, rising inequality, economic decline in some parts of the world, aspirations and rising middle class in other parts of the world. There are also technological changes. From a geopolitical standpoint, the post-Cold War era of international cooperation came to an end with 9-11 first, the war on terror, Russia's aggressiveness and China's rise as a global power, the 2011 Arab Spring. The net effect from all of these is that there is an increasing fragmentation in the global order. And the effect on, the, on armed conflicts is that since 2011, armed conflicts, especially intrastate armed conflicts, have boomed and have surpassed even the peak of the end of the Cold War. Another factor for the higher complexity of conflict has to do with conflict actors. There is a proliferation of non-state armed groups, which some authors call a rebel enterprise. As part of this, there are extremist groups that refuse to share the norms of conflict resolution, and they would not sit at the negotiating table, for example. And so that obviously undermines conflict resolution efforts. As part of this, there are also transnational criminal enterprises, trafficking issues, who profit from war and lawlessness. So what do we say? That for, for all these reasons, conflicts are today more intractable and conflicts become more protracted. There are old conflicts that do not end, and if they do, they tend to recur, as we, as we show in the, in the book. There are new conflicts that break out. Just this in the last one to two years, conflicts have broke out in uh, Ethiopia. Uh, in Mozambique, they have uh, escalated as well as uh, in the Sahel and the Lake Chad Basin, which all results in a conflict glut, as we define it. Let me conclude. What, what is really interesting about this is this trend which we analyze around what we call the long aftermath of war. And what do we mean by that? When do we say that conflicts end? The trend today is that conflicts do not end. There is this post-conflict phase that lingers on, that continues indefinitely, and it often overlaps with phases of conflict. This means that there are cases where conflicts move between phases of low and high intensity, often in the peripheries of countries. And in parallel, there is this peace-building industry, um, if we can define it that way, 
that tries to improve the economic conditions, the state institutions, as if the war was behind us. But that is not, that is not the case. So there is a contradiction here in this post-conflict implementation and the wars that are still active. So in conclusion, we have a really hard time today to define, categorize, and delimit boundaries between war and post-war. And given these changes, what are the challenges this poses for policymakers, and what might they need to consider? As the armed conflict analyzes, there are important policy implications. We have observed this implementation of post-conflict development and peace-building policies while a country is at war, as I just mentioned. However, the trajectory of post-conflict has created some unrealistic expectations about reconstructing a country, transforming its society, and rebuilding economies. While there is war and while a viable political settlement for peace-building does not exist. And this, we think, is a key point. Afghanistan and Colombia are in the armed conflict survey, not only as their conflict chapters, but we also use them to show the example in the global essay on the aftermath of conflict, how these two countries have had differing trajectories of implementing peace-building and post-conflict policies while at war. And while we were doing this, uh, this chapter, the outcome, the terrible outcome of, of Afghanistan was not, was not yet with, with us, but we could already have hints at the fact that there was a disjointed nature between post-conflict policies and active war. Colombia, on the other hand, has always been a laboratory for peace-building policies while at war. And so that is, uh, without giving value judgment, those there have been several good peace-building outcomes coming out from Colombia, even before the peace agreement of 2016. Post-conflict reconstruction in the modern era is based on the post-Cold War successes in ending wars and building peace in countries like El Salvador, Cambodia, Namibia, Ethiopia, and others. This was in the early 1990s. These cases benefited from comprehensive peace agreements, massive disarmament, demobilization, and reintegration programs, and were accompanied by economic investments. And especially, there were strong security guarantees from the international community to hold those, those agreements. While this model of technocratic solutions was successful in the presence of viable political settlements and other conditions, this model is now largely insufficient and all actors are aware of it. Standard approaches that are anchored on governance, on best practice, practices, cannot produce good peace-building outcomes while the war is ongoing. In conclusion, what we try to say in the Armed Conflict Survey is that political conditions and focusing on incentives for conflict parties need to be center stage in the analysis of conflict and in the device of policy solutions. So the post-conflict, the ultimate message is that it's very much political and is not just a technocratic and governance endeavor.
You're listening to Sound Strategic, where I'm joined by this year's team behind the Armed Conflict Survey to explore some of the political, military, and humanitarian impacts of armed conflicts around the world. Samir, both Irena and Benjamin have spoken about how conflict is changing and becoming more complex. I wondered if you could talk a little bit about the changing nature of who is intervening in conflicts. Yeah, this is a really striking and perhaps even poignant moment to consider the subject of external interventions in armed conflicts. This year's ACS will be released the same month, second decade since 9-11. And of course, everyone has the images of the US withdrawal and allied withdrawal from Afghanistan very fresh in in their minds. What we did, taking into account that we started this analysis late last year, was take into account the bigger picture of the changing trends in external interventions in armed conflicts. And and by that, what we simply mean is those powerful countries that are able to intervene in the combat and fighting uh, in an attempt to influence the outcome of an armed conflict, whether backing one particular side or intervening for their own uh, geopolitical ends. And what we've seen in this analysis is something that uh, the Afghanistan withdrawal really brings into sharp focus is that armed conflict interventions are less Western-dominated than perhaps we've gotten used to over the last two decades. And and what does that mean? Well, what that means is since 9-11, there's been a repeated cycle in different parts of the world of the US leading counter-terrorism, nation-building, stabilisation interventions into which its allies like the United Kingdom and other NATO countries, Australia, perhaps even regional allies, have deployed their armed forces under US leadership or under US guidance. This cycle is not so much coming to an abrupt end, but being supplanted by the separate armed conflict interventions of a variety of non-Western countries. And this is what we focus in on our analysis. Uh, We're looking at uh, interventions in the last few years by countries as diverse as Russia, Saudi Arabia, Turkey, Iran, Israel, the United Arab Emirates, in different armed conflicts around the world for different goals, uh, often conducted in very different ways, ranging all the way from Saudi Arabia's uh, sort of coalition of the willing under a UN mandate uh, to intervene in the Yemen conflict uh, to the sort of under the radar interventions uh, preferred by Russia and Ukraine, and also in its own context by Israel Uh, against Hezbollah and other targets that it deems to be of a threat to its uh, national interest in the Syria conflict. Bringing all that together, what we're seeing compared to even as recently as a decade ago is a massive diversification in the nature and number of countries intervening and a move away from them being so Western dominated. And if I can just relate this to a wider trend, something we want to do with the armed conflict survey this year, as Arena has explained, is to really draw the linkages between what's happening inside armed conflicts and also wider geopolitical trends. There's a lot of talk of multipolarity, the world is less Western dominated, the US is challenged by different countries around the world. Well, this is bearing down on the way in which interventions in armed conflicts uh, are are sort of unfolding. Fewer countries perhaps waiting for sanction from the USA to mount their interventions, perhaps intervening without even seeking permission or intervening uh, and then absorbing the criticism of Western countries and ignoring that criticism uh, to keep on going forward. Just to round off uh, those observations, not all of these interventions are decisive. 
and they're prosecuted for very different goals, often for much smaller goals than the US and its allies sought in Iraq and Afghanistan. And if I may posit one observation from our analysis, it's that many of these other countries, non-Western countries intervening, have seen what's happened to the US-led intervention in somewhere like Afghanistan. They've learned from it. And rather than deploying large standing armies to be supplied decade in, decade out, relying on other methods of intervention. And why do you think we're seeing more countries become involved in conflicts? And given this trend, what are the implications for conflict resolution? Well, the motivations behind each conflict intervention are certainly unique to that state party that's intervening and to the conflict it's intervening in. But in a very broad brush way, we can certainly see a reduction in US authority in relation to armed conflicts in different parts of the world. It's not so long ago where uh, condemnation from the USA for an armed conflict intervention would be something you'd expect, perhaps even some sort of US-led way of blocking an intervention or or punishing uh, a country for doing so. Now, actually, what we're seeing, certainly under the Trump era, when countries like Russia and Turkey were intervening in different conflicts, it's something of a continuation of this, which is, I think, more of an acceptance in other powerful countries that you can intervene and get away with it. Whether that means you succeed or not, it, it remains to be seen, but certainly you can start that intervention. We look at Nagorno-Karabakh as well as another example where Turkey intervenes. We look at uh, the way in which Russia mixes the Wagner Group and its own uniformed armed forces and so on and so forth. But there are big implications for conflict resolution. Firstly, if you have more members of the UNP5 intervening, and I'm specifically thinking about how interventionist Russia has become, then clearly Russia is not going to vote against its own conflict intervention interests when motions are tabled in the UN Security Council around conflict resolution or perhaps even humanitarian issues. That's one level. Uh, The second level is at the uh, issue of regional organisations, which so often lead the way uh, in conflict resolution initiatives. Very quickly to mention the OSCE, Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe. Actually very important in both the Ukraine and Nagorno-Karabakh conflicts are running mediation processes, monitoring missions, and so on and so forth. Well, you can imagine, since Russia is both a member of the OSCE and unofficially one of the conflict interveners in Ukraine, this jeopardizes the OSCE's ability to intervene successfully and decisively in the Ukraine conflict in resolving that conflict. And both Turkey and Russia are members of the OSCE and both have intervened in different ways in the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict. Once again, uh, compromising the, uh, I would say, the impartiality, but bringing their national interest into conflict resolution discussions taking place in these multilateral platforms. Thank you, Samir. And a question to all of you, actually. I wondered if you could each perhaps reflect on a region or a specific conflict which you think we should be watching in the year ahead. Perhaps starting with Irene first. It's a great question, Maya. And in fact, is the question we had in, in our mind when we conceived the report. We really wanted the report this year to provide answer to this question and really to help 
practitioner and policymaker in understanding which are the areas to monitor uh, for the year ahead or the, or, the, or the medium term in terms of escalation, peace prospects, but also trends pointing to increasing area of fragility or political risk. So I hope we, we are actually providing uh, interesting insight in the report for all the different regions. So in terms of regions, I know that Benjamin and uh, Samir will, uh, will focus on important regions such as uh, uh, Africa and, and Asia, which at the moment is probably top of the mind of most of us with Afghanistan and also evolutions in Myanmar. I will focus on Latin America, which is my, my region of expertise, but also it's an interesting area for conflict. Uh, Latin America presents a very, a very unique, I would say, conflict landscape and also an interesting type of uh, global relevance. So traditionally, the conflict landscape in Latin America has been dominated by organized crime. What we used to see and we still see, it's a variety of armed groups fighting with one another and the state for control of illicit economy. So really the motives are predominantly uh, economic, with the exception of Colombia. But what we have seen in recent years, and especially this year through the pandemic, the conflict landscape evolving into a mix of organized crime, yes, but also political dimension. In fact, the organized group have increasingly been challenging the state for control of territories and for monopoly of force. They have increasingly entrenched themselves into the social fabric, playing, I would say, a quasi-state function in many ways in terms of providing basic services, ensuring lockdown measures and curfews, and providing medical supplies, really replacing the state where the state was, was not present or really in their area of control. This is something quite interesting because I think it's going to become even more predominant going forward. I'm saying that because what we are seeing on one side is that the pandemic has further undermined the government effectiveness and also fiscal space to really be able to provide for the increased necessity of majority of population, which have been very, very strongly hit by the pandemic. What we see is also rule of law deteriorating across the region, especially in Central America. At the same time, as I said, poverty and inequality going up, so providing also a, a much bigger um, labor pool for gangs to recruit from. Uh, the criminal group on the other side have been quick to reconfigure their supply chains, and also they have leverage government disarray to enshrine themselves, as I said, in the social fabric of the region, their capacity for criminal governance has increased at the same time as their legitimacy with local population. This, I think, will pose important questions for, for government on how to deal with these actors. In a way, uh, it will be important to look at their sources of revenue, so really looking at uh, money laundering regulation and action, which needs to be coherent and regional and global, because this is a global phenomenon. And the other thing would be, is it going to really question or challenge the, the current way in which government have been dealing with gangs so far, which is really iron fist policies. Because now, is it really sustainable doing that when those gangs are actually controlling part of the territories and are also playing a, a quasi-state role? So I wonder what's going to happen. Are we going to see new or hybrid um, approach? negotiation with gangs, way to really try to find innovative solution uh, to this. More in general, uh, if we look at regional drivers of uh, conflict, uh, those will remain in policies and development are, uh, around Colombia, Venezuela, and also the US in terms of policy on migration, drugs, and firearms, which we don't expect to change. So we don't really see any, any, any substantial improvement in that sense. It's important to, and I wanted to mention the climate change aspect, because obviously what we have seen last year in Central America, for instance, 
licenses is increasing a migration. And one of the driver, or say at least one of the multiplier of this migration has been really climate change. And we've seen this in, uh, we've seen two, two tropical storms which hit Central America, which incidentally is also the most violent part of, of the region. And also we have seen this, uh, this dry corridor, which is actually the area of Central America, which is most affected by climate change, becoming more and more a hotspot, I would say, for conflict going forward. Another element to, I think we should be watching is really evolution in Venezuela and Haiti. Both of them are area of big instability. The two countries have been really engulfed in deepening political crisis and economic crisis. Crime has been spiraling in, in both countries and also Government institutions have been collapsing. Now, in Venezuela, there are negotiations going on which will maybe uh, help in building a, a path towards towards election, but we don't expect that to be to change really the dynamics there. The, the case of Haiti, I think it's, it's interesting because it actually highlights this element of criminal governance. In fact, the region of Haiti, which was most affected by the earthquake, was actually hard to reach because for with, with aids and financial flows to actually support the recovery or the reconstruction because of gangs control in that area. So it's gangs are actor with, uh, with which the government will have to increasingly deal and, and, and realize that they are now governing uh, in their own way. The biggest impact of uh, Latin American conflict on global stability go really through migration flows. This is an interesting element of global significance because really Latin America is not globally significant for its geopolitical impact. It is globally significant for its human impact. So this is actually something quite different from other regions of the world where the, 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 the three different elements we're looking at for global significance are more mixed or areas like the Middle East where the, the geopolitical significance is much more important. Thank you, Irene. So lots to watch out for in that very comprehensive answer. Moving on to Benjamin, what do you think we should be watching for in the year ahead? Let me touch very briefly on Sub-Saharan Africa, which in 2020 set a record high in the number of armed conflicts, both state-based conflict and non-state-based conflicts between non-state armed groups. This renders Sub-Saharan Africa the most conflict-prone region in the world, together with the Middle East and North Africa. The Armed Conflict Survey analyzes, uh, in this 2021 edition, 11 conflicts in the region. Nine are country-based conflicts, and two are regional conflicts in the Sahel and the Lake Chad Basin. Obviously, also the country conflicts have spillover effects and and regional dimensions. Some of the overarching trends from all these conflicts in the region, if we can generalize, first is that increasing there is a mix of local grievances and transnational ideology of radical Islam. And we witness that these are conflating and rendering these conflicts even more complex. The second trend is a boom in third-party intervention in these intrastate conflicts in Sub-Saharan Africa. So increasingly third-party countries, we have seen Rwanda and Russia in the Central African Republic, for example, or the intervention of Eritrea in Ethiopia. We have seen an increase of this, and this is an aspect 
that is analyzed in the armed conflict survey and that Samir has just touched upon. The third trend is around the protracted conflicts that relates very much to my remarks earlier. Most of the conflicts in Sub-Saharan Africa are today protracted and they've been protracted for a decade or longer, like the DRC, like Somalia, like South Sudan, like CAR. So if I have to look, if we have to look at at a hotspot to watch uh, in Sub-Saharan Africa, what I see and what we see in the book is really this arc of conflict and instability that goes west to east from the Western Sahel of Mali and Burkina Faso all the way to the Horn of Africa and Somalia. And we go through the Lake Chad Basin and the conflicts at the intersection between Chad, Nigeria and Cameroon. The instability, the permanent instability in the Central African Republic. The different transitions that Sudan and South Sudan are going further and the very worrisome conflict in Ethiopia all countries that are bordering one another from west to east. So I think that this is really the area, a hotspot for the region, but a hotspot globally. And last but not least, Samir. Well, from my vantage point here in the IISS Asia office, I'm going to talk about Asia and the conflicts to look out for uh, in the coming year. I mean, our analysis in this publication, clearly two conflicts in Asia spring out for attention. Afghanistan and Myanmar. I'm going to talk a little bit about both of these. Afghanistan, of course, the images are still fresh in the memory and the uncertainty is palpable as to what will happen next, whether there'll be resistance to the Taliban, the Kahirs, whether the Taliban government in Kabul will solidify and be able to dampen down or negotiate its way past any internal challenges and whether ISIS-K, the local affiliate of the Islamic State terrorist group, could mount a particular particularly brutal or visceral challenge to Afghanistan's new leaders, the Taliban, or the region. All of these are unanswered questions that governments, aid agencies, and the community covering and working in conflict will be, will be examining with, you know, with great attention. Myanmar is very important to keep in mind, however. The coup is only in February 2021 that has given wave to this particular period of violence but it's basically combined uh, not only resistance to the military takeover in major cities, but also uh, the multi-front civil war that the Tatmadaw, the uh, Myanmar military, have already been fighting against different ethnic armed groups. It's an incredibly complex conflict to map. But I, I want to draw both Afghanistan and Myanmar together for a moment, because we earlier on in our conversation, we talked about how changing geopolitical trends influence and bear down on these individual armed conflicts. China has a border with Afghanistan. It also has uh, huge interests in Myanmar. And as a result, the possibility of China to be drawn in to either of these conflicts, whether in a diplomatic way, whether in uh, reconstruction terms, or whether, and this would be a real watershed, in some kind of security assistance, even if it's indirect security assistance, is an extremely important theme to keep in mind. But at the same time, India is also present in the region and has considerable stakes in both Afghanistan and Myanmar. And the same applies to India. And there's no forecast whatsoever for any kind of proxy contest, for any kind of third party interventions of the nature we're talking about earlier. But clearly, in the sort of less Western dominated 
Asian conflict space that we're in now, the importance of non-Western states playing their role in containing, responding to, possibly in the future, intervening perhaps through a multilateral platform, who knows? These are really important themes to keep in mind. It just goes to show just how much has changed uh, in the conflict space, not only in the last few decades, but also in the last sort of year, year and a half since the previous armed conflict survey uh, was published. Well, Irene, Samir, Benjamin, what a fantastic way to cover this year's armed conflict survey. Looking forward to the launch of the publication. And thank you all for coming on to the show. And thank you all for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Please do follow, rate, and subscribe to Sound Strategic wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts to keep up to date with all the latest episodes. And for more in-depth analysis of the key international security and defense issues from around the world, be sure to follow the WSS on Twitter, LinkedIn, or visit the WSS website. Thank you and see you next time.